No one was harmed in the filming of this sequence. The shit you and your friends do in a pub is what I do and somehow get paid for it. That's my natural hairline there now. Comedians are, yeah, we're very judgmental. I don't really think that the American people are more polarized now than they were 10 years ago. Hey, I'm Mark Sheridan and you're welcome along to another episode of The Delph. My guests today are all pals. In 2017, I had the pleasure of hosting three sold-out nights with Javier Pena and Stephen Murphy at Vicar Street here in Dublin for an agency called Outset. It was the first time both of the lads had toured and they ended up travelling the world selling out shows everywhere. So Steve and Javier were DEA agents, more specifically the DEA agents who were immortalised by Netflix in the show Narcos. The show chronicled their pursuit of one of the most infamous criminals in history, Pablo Escobar. Both of these guys have led fascinating lives and I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into their pursuit of Escobar and their incredible careers. Manscaped is taking over Ireland just in time for Christmas. Their life-changing hygiene products are now available in all Tesco Ireland shops. It's also time for fresh ball fall. It's the season of pumpkin spice and making your crush look nice. That means sipping arches in the fall breeze and using Manscaped products to trim your balls with ease. We don't say fall or arches, but it was funny, so I said it anyway. Make sure to swing by and pick up their signature lawnmower, the most brilliant ball trimmer to bless the motherland. Join the six million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by swinging by Tesco Ireland or going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code DELF. Thanks for supporting the show. I've been using Manscaped products for a couple of years now and I gotta say, don't sleep on the weed whacker. Nose and ear hair creeps up on you and by the time somebody says it to you, it's probably already too late. Both the lawnmower and the weed whacker use skin safe technology, technology and are waterproof so you can use them in the shower. So check out Tesco for Manscaped products or if you want to order online with free shipping from manscaped.com and support the show, use the code DELV at checkout and also get 20% off. Enjoy the show. You had a uh, plentiful time, a kind of a crazy time in Miami before, before Columbia. We did. Um, so I started as a uniformed police officer in 1975 in a small town in, in the state of West Virginia. Uh, did uniform patrol for six years, and then I became a railroad cop for almost six years. And that just wasn't what I wanted to do. And I'd always been enticed by narcotics investigations. You know, that was the sexy thing. Miami Vice was out back then. And, you, you know, I thought, well, back then I had hair so I could grow it long and I could wear the bling and all that crap. And um, so I joined DEA in 1987. And after the academy, my first posting was Miami. In the late 80s, Miami was still the Wild West in the cocaine market. I mean, that's where um, Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel were bringing all the cocaine in through the Caribbean islands. Mexico and Central America wasn't a big thing back then. Um, and I, I got to tell you a quick story. The, the most cocaine I'd seen in my first 12 years of law enforcement was two ounces. So a little baggy about like this. The first case I got to work on undercover, we took a 53-foot Hatteras Sport Fisherman undercover yacht. I never even heard of these. Went to the Turks and Caicos Islands, which I didn't know existed, and went picked up 400 kilos. So I went from two ounces to 880 pounds of coke. I tell everybody I was addicted to coke at that point, just in a different <laughs> way. <laughs> um, spent four years in Miami, then uh, got selected to go to Bogota, where I met Javier. We became partners in June 1991. I uh, had another partner at the time. Javier did Gary Sheridan, who got promoted, moved on, and um, started working on the Medellin cartel, uh, stayed there for three years, went to Greensboro, North Carolina, 
Atlanta, Washington, D.C., back to Atlanta, back to Washington, D.C., and retired, and now live in Orlando, Florida. So, Steve, what, what was it like? What did, like, in terms of mass, what did that much cocaine look like? Oh, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I didn't think there was that much cocaine in the world at one time. <laughs> That's how naive I was. <laughs> but uh, it was just these big green duffel bags. I, I can't even remember eight, maybe duffel bags, just crammed full of cocaine. And, you know, to, to, for us to take drugs to court, we were working in conjunction with the Turks and Caicos police. So they wanted us to prosecute in the United States because that's where the organization was that we were investigating. So you have to maintain the cha chain of custody of your evidence. So since I was there, when the, when the Coke was delivered, DEA flew down a twin engine plane, took all the seats out of the plane. We stuffed that cocaine into the back of this twin engine plane. I can't even remember what kind it is now. And it was so full. I had to climb on top of the duffel bags and fly back, laying on top of all these duffel bags, cocaine back to Opelika airport in Miami. And then, you know, we had our, our enforcement group came out and, and met us and we took it to the warehouse and processed it and all that stuff. So it was, was, it, was, a, it was a buttload of dope. I, I was going to say it was a comfortable to sleep on. You know what? It was, uh, I think I was just so excited, you know, to finally be part of something like that. I mean, that's what you see on TV. And all of a sudden now I'm getting to live that lifestyle. And, and I tell you what, I never look back. It was just, I got there in, in late 87. This was in February of 88. Uh, it wasn't my case. It was a senior agent's case. And he brought me on as his junior partner and he just let me play and, and get my feet wet. And man, I just never looked back. I had a blast. And Javier, what about you? The kind of pre-Steve Murphy life in law enforcement? Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I started with the sheriff's office in 1977 in Laredo, Texas, which is the border town right now. It gets a lot of attention because of, you know, uh, the immigration issues. Uh, so I did seven years with the sheriff's office. And uh, I came, like I said, it was 1977. I was working uh, the night shift. And like a lot of police officers, you know, they, they work at night and they go to college during the day. That's what I did, got my degree. And uh, towards the end of my sheriff's office, I just, I did not know what DEA was. I, I never heard, I mean, I had heard of it, but you know, I saw where they were hiring. And it was, uh, you know, I think back in 77 in Laredo was making $10,000 a year, right? And I think DEA, when I saw them post the job announcement, they were like at $20,000 a year. So that was my incentive to apply. And I had to ask someone what DEA was, but, you know, I did not know what it was. So I got my degree, I applied, and then, uh, you know, I, I you know, I find out that it was a federal marks, basically. And, uh, you know what, it took about a year, got selected. And they sent me to Austin, Texas, which Austin is the capital of, uh, of Texas. And Austin at this time, a lot of people do not uh, realize, but was the start of the music industry. You know, the big country western, George Strait, uh, music, playing for free. I, you know, he'd go on donations. So, you know, I was single and Austin was uh, was the town in, in Texas, a lot of partying, a lot of stuff, man. So I had fun. So I did four years in Austin. And, you know, when I, when I started working in Austin, you do a lot of stuff, undercover surveillance, you do the runt work, you know, the, the work in the weekends. And because I was single, 
I hooked up with the Austin police narcotics units uh, a lot. So they would call me two, three in the morning. So I was all over the place, you know, uh, making cases. And all of a sudden, you know, I was leading the, the, the case production in Austin. You know, we had a case book and my name was all over, you know. So um, and I, I was doing small stuff, undercover surveillances. And uh, when I say small stuff, ounces, you know, ounce heroin deals, two, three ounces, meth, methamphetamine was big. It was being manufactured in Austin at this time. So a lot of meth labs. And uh, if you would take down a meth lab, in our circle of DEA was called the class one violator. So I had a lot of class one violators, which helped my stats. Anyway, I always want to know what the foreign side was, you know, and we were, I was close to Mexico. Austin was only about what, four or five hours away from Mexico. We had a lot of Mexican traffickers. And uh, so I applied for, um, for Mexico. And I remember my boss comes in and says, Javier, uh, did you apply for Colombia? I said, no, sir. I said, well, you got selected for Colombia. And he says, it, it was, it's a mistake. He says, you want to fight it. And I said, you know what, boss? I got selected Colombia. Let me go see the map. I did not know where Colombia was. I said, I'll go to Colombia. No, no big deal. So that's, uh, you know, I did uh, six years. I met Steve there. Obviously, we worked the famous uh, Medellin cartel, Pablo Escobar investigation. So after uh, he gets killed, I leave Colombia in 1994, go to Puerto Rico for three years. Uh, and I got promoted as a group supervisor. Then uh, I go to headquarters, get promoted as a, you know, a little more. And I did two years and went back to Colombia for two years. And after Colombia, San Antonio, then I got promoted to the big boss, basically our agent in charge positions, which is the highest San Francisco, learned the, the marijuana business there, the meth business, the legalization stuff that was going on in California. Then uh, back to Puerto Rico as the boss, then uh, went back to Houston as the boss and I retired in uh, 2015, uh, basically. And that's when Netflix came along. Steve and I hooked up and that's why we're here today, Mike. <laughs> You're both superstars now. So in, in, t in terms of the cities where you worked pre-Columbia. So Steve, obviously it's Miami with you, Javier with you, it's Austin. In terms of step up and danger, what was the, like from, if you could put a number on it, so to go from a five to a nine, Steve, maybe you could go first. What was it like? What was the, what was the jump? Well, um, prior to joining DEA, I'd been in several shootings over 12 years and, and uh, you know, thank the good man upstairs, I never got hit. Um, but going to Miami in 1987, uh, well, I'll give you an example. In 1989, we were doing a, a 17 kilo, what we call a buy bus, which is, you know, in, in Miami, Florida in 1989, that was, it was like doing a couple ounces. It was just a small case as a reason to get out of the office. Um, you've heard of Murphy's law, Murphy here. So, you know, something's going to go wrong. Uh, long story short, my partner ends up, we get in a shootout. My partner gets hit twice. He survives, but the informant gets shot right there in the Adam's apple. He didn't survive. So that was the level of violence that all of a sudden you're exposed to. Um, and then going to Columbia, holy cow, we got down there and, you know, got to meet Javier and, and he's kind of a legend in DEA anyway. So it was, it was pretty cool to be working with the guy. And uh, one of the first things they tell you is, by the way, there's a $300,000 price tag on your head that Pablo Escobar put on you just because you're a DEA agent. And you think, well, damn, that's a nice welcome to the country. <laughs> but 
but you know, it's, it's, uh, people think we're crazy when we say this, you, you don't get complacent. Your, your self-awareness is at a very hyper state. You're always self-aware of where you are, who's around you, what's going on, but you do kind of get used to that threat. Uh, we were much younger back then, you know, I'm sure we thought we were macho, you know, maybe think, Hey, they come look at that. They want $300,000 from you. That's a big deal. You know, it's, it wasn't, it was a stupid attitude to have, to be quite honest with you, but you just deal with it. You know, it's, you don't linger on it because it'll drive you crazy if you do. Um, then going to Greensboro, um, when I first got to Greensboro, I'll be honest with you, you know, so by now I've, I've been a cop for 17 years, roughly four, seven, seven, 19 years. And for the first time ever, I felt like I didn't have to prove myself to anybody because we'd brought down Pablo Escobar. And honestly, that's when the job of being an investigator got to be fun for me. So the, you know, the rest of my career, um, when I was making cases, I really enjoyed it. As you move up in the ranks, you know, the fun part goes away and you become an administrator and, and, um, <laughs> not sure why I did all that, but it's kind of paid off for us in here in the long run. So, um, I didn't quite understand why we had offices in small places like Greensboro until I got involved in the investigations. And then you realize back then crack cocaine, which I had never even seen crack cocaine, crack cocaine, that was the issue. And so you dealt with what the threat was to the communities in that area and, and then got promoted to Atlanta and, and uh, my first promotion and ran a, what we call a mobile enforcement team. And, and those are actually smaller cases, but we were going after the most violent criminals in those areas in Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, South Carolina. So it's just um, the threat levels commensurate with with where you are and what the threat is. Um, you do have to be aware of what's going on. You take precautions. You once you become a supervisor, you want your people that are working with you to be safe as well. But it's a dangerous business, and you knew that going into it. So you know you just try to plan for the best, expect the worst. Um, it's not a, a fun thing going telling someone that you know, somebody they love has been wounded or been killed. So it's just part of the job. It's, there's nothing special about Javier and I. We don't pretend to be tough guys. You know, we're two small town country boys. We got to work a really big drug case, you know, the Medellin cartel and kind of got blown out of proportion by a thing called Narcos on Netflix and got to meet Mike several years ago and come to Ireland for our first tour. And, and here we are again. <laughs> One of the things I remember you guys telling me on stage uh, in Vicar Street, Javier, was how the Colombian SWAT teams or the Colombian National Police, uh, there's obviously kind of like you guys became buddies after a while, but they would be like, they would have heavy weaponry. So they would have automatic automatic weapons, semi-automatic weapons, whatever it was. You guys had your government, you know, firearms. <laughs> so did you guys, you guys had to do raids essentially on drug houses, which are, what, what are you, Glocks, I assume, nine millimeter Glocks? That must have been terrifying. Yeah, mine was, I don't know, uh, Steve, I think it's the same, right? The Smith & Wesson 9mm, you know, that's a nine one gun, couple of clips, and and we couldn't wear anything that would identify us as law enforcement. So we had to be plain clothes. That was the rules, uh, the government set rules. They said no, no DEA, no raid jacket. So basically we were just shirt you know your nine millimeter and uh basically that that was it they didn't want any 
like I said, uh, uniforms, you know, fatigues, nothing like that. In long guns, I don't think we had any. We'd just take our nine millimeter, we'd be with the cops. And uh, that, that was the rules of engagement, uh, really, uh, for us. But, you know, one, one of the things uh, when, you, when you were talking about, you know, the, the violence, you know, I was in Austin. I did a lot of undercover. I almost got killed once. They, uh, you know, and I, when you deal with smaller traffickers, with smaller crooks, that has a propensity for more violence than the bigger crooks. You know what I'm talking about? It's like these guys are street guys. Uh, I remember it was a Friday afternoon. I was brand new, walked into a hotel room in Austin. And it's like everything. The last minute, nobody wants to work. It's Friday. Everybody wants to go home to their families. And me being single, I'd always, the office would be mad at me. Said, that, you know, they said, Devin, Javier, you got another case? Is that not my fault? The informant's calling. There's a guy in a hotel room trying to sell heroin. They've already mentioned where, you know, that he's got a buyer. And I think it was like six, seven ounces of tar heroin, which tar, black tar Mexican heroin was a lot more uh, uh, potent. And they, you know, anyway, it was a lot, you know, long story short, I walk into the room and the guy puts a gun to my head and basically says, man, if this deal gets screwed up or if you're her cop, you know, you're going to be the first one to die. I'm going to put a bullet right to your head. You know, a lot of things come through your mind. That I remember the, the, the first thing that came to my mind is just saying, you know what, guy, time out. Let's... Uh, Let's just go home. I'm an actor. I'm not a real, I'm not a bad guy. I'm just acting, man. You know, let's just, you know what? You go home, I go home. Let's say candle, he gets hurt, you know. But after, after a while, you're, you know, you're that uh, sixth sense, your, your meanness starts coming in. So I started, you know, speaking to him in Spanish and he realized, and I mentioned some, uh, some bars in Nuevo Laredo that I was from Nuevo Laredo, I was hanging out at, and he tells his partner, man, he, he can't be a cop if he's visiting all the city bars in, in Nuevo Laredo. So the guy was just, you know, he felt that easy. He put his gun down. Obviously, I took the jump on him and I arrested him. But, you know, uh, and then uh, so that was that violence. It was more of a street violence, right? So when I get to Colombia, the violence multiplies by a hundred times, basically, because, you know, now you do not know, you know who your enemy is, but you do not know who's coming to get you. I had to leave my apartment. Uh, so I get a call from my boss. Says, I hear it. just don't panic. Just uh, get your gun, get your creds, come back to the embassy right away. Leave everything behind. They had intercepted a call that they were coming for me. Uh, so I, you know, of course you're all nervous and, you know, I get out of there as soon as I can grab my gun and, uh, head back to the embassy. Uh, but then the violence, the, what I try to explain to people is by being at the wrong place at the wrong time, basically, that's where it, where you would get hurt, you know, at restaurants, so the, the, like I said, those car bombs, those deadly infamous car bombs that he was placing, you never knew. And, and he was targeting the busiest places. He wanted to kill as many people as possible. I mean, he was targeting even the embassy, the old embassy, they tried to bomb. They tried to put a bomb. They, the cops caught it before. Uh, but it was just being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, thousands of innocent people got killed. So that to me was that violence that you never heard of. 
you didn't expect uh several times you'd be having dinner and you just see the you know that smoke you know that you know that bomb uh, noise and then the smoke uh, so that that was that type of violence which who can prepare you for that no one and who had ever seen that <laughs> no one we're we're used to traffickers confronting them you know and we overpower the trafficker when we go in on raids we got you know 15 20 people sometimes and in Colombia just you know Steve and I against the the unknown the unknown factor which is what really killed a lot of people I've I mean I haven't been around guns a huge amount of my life but I've been I've been to gun ranges and that noise for people who don't realize obviously the UK and Ireland we wouldn't have uh, firearms as open here they're not legal here to carry so but that noise of a gun going off is terrifying for people that aren't used to it do, do you get used to it? I mean, obviously, the danger is just something that I assume has you on edge a lot. But do you get used to the that kind of high tenseness all the time? Well, the the funny thing is, when you go into a shoot, when you're involved in a shooting, an active shooting, uh, it's not unusual for people to never hear the sounds because mm. your senses. I know it sounds crazy, but yeah. you know we've both been in several. Uh, I'm a former firearms instructor for DEA, and you, you know we've talked to a lot of agents that have been in gun battles and other military types and so forth. And it's not unusual to develop tunnel vision because you're so focused on what the threat is that's coming at you, and you're hearing it, it's kind of like it goes on pause. You can still hear things, but you're so hyper focused on on the threat, you honestly don't hear things. And and guys, you know when we're when we're learning how to shoot you learn to count your shots because you know how many rounds you have before you need to reload. But time and time again, guys have fired, if, if they're carrying a magazine in their nine millimeter or 40 caliber that might carry 13 rounds, it's not unusual for somebody to fire five rounds and then dump the magazine and reload thinking they're out of bullets or the other way around that the, they run out of bullets and they're pulling the trigger and they can't get the gun to go off. They can't figure out why, uh, which, you know, this all comes back to training, why training is so important, but, uh, it's it's amazing the physiological changes in your body when you're under a threat like that you know and you're flying in we were flying out with the columbia national police on those huey gunships and they got the 30 calibers in the doorway and um you talk about noise those puppies can they can generate a lot of noise when they're shooting those automatic machine guns and um it's just i don't know you have to experience to understand it um that's the best way I can explain it. It's, it's either that or we're just freaking crazy, which is probably the real truth. <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to keep you guys way, way over time here. Um, but before I get to the kind of Pablo Escobar uh, and the Columbia specific stuff, Javier, there's a line in Miami Vice and it's uh, it's undercover and there's which way is up. Uh, I love the movie. I thought it was a great movie. It's Michael Mann. It's, um, but obviously you understand that world way better than I do. Is it when you're deep undercover with something like that and you're existing to live really and existing to, for an end goal to put some criminals in jail, do, do the lines get muddled sometimes? Do they get great? Yes, yeah, of course it gets. I mean, and, and you know what, uh, when, when you're doing undercover, like I said, I, you know, I mean, I used to also teach the young guys, uh, is, is we're, we're not, we're not real crooks. Remember, you know, and I tell the guys, there's always that line. You're not a real crook. We're, like I said before, we're actors. You're acting as a real crook. You think like a real crook. And 
a lot of times that street smart, that uh, being mean, that being an asshole comes up because you know what you're when you're negotiating, what are you negotiating for? You're trying to get the best price. It's like any business deal out there, right? You're you're trying to get the best price for the best product. You're trying to get a, a guarantee that it's not going to be a bullshit product. And, and you're trying to save money. If I come in to an undercover and the crew says, you know what? I want $30,000 for a kilo of cocaine. Oh, perfect deal. We shake heads. You're a bullshit. That crook is going to go, hey, something's wrong with this guy because, you know, you're you're trying to get the best price. It's your money or your organization's money. So why you never go? It's like uh, when you buy a new car, you negotiate, right? You you try to get it down. So it, it's basically and it's an art form. It's, it's and everybody has a niche. And, and you know what? A lot of people think that DEA, that's all we do is undercover. You know what? Undercover is maybe 5% of the job. You know, we have a specialties. Uh, you know, there's guys who are financial experts and that look like geeks, right? They come in with their glasses, you know, calculators, you know, the, you know, they're, they're not a street guy. You would recognize that guy's never bought, you know, uh, something out on the street, but you know, he's the financial guy. He's the accountant in, in, in an organization, you know, like Pablo Escobar. Yeah. I mean, they had professional accountants who've been educated. So there's a niche, uh, and, and uh, like I said, undercover, you're, you're trying, like I said, to get the best product, the cheapest possible, and that's where your negotiations uh, come in. And, uh, you know, and with us, when you get, and, you know, I've never been that deep undercover. When you talk about deep undercover, that's also, you know, that's the, the guys who work, you know, four or five months, they have their own apartments. Uh, you know, I'm not going to talk about operations right now in DA, but again, those that's not too often. You know, like I said our, our undercover are, are they're short, they're to the point. You know, we're trying to get that dope once they deliver it, uh, or it's the, it's a reverse, we're trying to buy dope. I mean, we have a lot of specialties. Uh, however, it's it's uh, it's an art form. It's a game, and, and you got to be good at, at that game. And uh, you can always, at the end, you know what, Mike, and what I tell the young kids out there doing undercover is, you can always say, you know what, guys, I'm not comfortable with this deal. I'm going home, buddy. You know what I'm saying? If you want to change, you call, let me know, and you walk. <laughs> Nine out of ten, that crew's going to be calling you back, trying to sell his stuff. Has it been difficult to watch? I mean, because both of you have lost friends and lost colleagues throughout the Colombia, throughout the situation that you were in in Colombia with Pablo Escobar. Is it difficult to watch, or has it been difficult to watch him be romanticized a little bit when you know, like very one of a, a group of very few people who know exactly what the man did? Has that been tough? Uh, it's it's not tough. It pisses you off, to be quite honest. You know because. And that's the reason we still do our shows. This is our seventh year. I mean, we met you the first year. You know, Ireland was the first foreign country we went to from the United States doing our show. And you were there. And uh, we were actually shocked when we got there because that theater there in Dublin sold out, I think, three shows in just a matter of days. 
Uh, and then we even got to go to Belfast for another show up there. And we've been back for a second tour through Ireland and, and Scotland and England. Um, but our whole purpose of doing it is we want the world to know the truth because there are other factions out there. You know, Pablo's son is on the speaking circuit. You know, he's uh, probably got bigger following than we do. And he's created these myths, I guess is a nice way of calling a lie about how his father died. We know how his father died. We were there. You know, it's, it's not like it was in the narco series. I wasn't on the roof when Pablo was killed. That was the Colombian National Police was up there. I came out after the fact with Colonel Hugo Martinez. Um, but it, 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 you know, we've, and we've got our book out now, Manhunters, how we took down Pablo Escobar. And it's, it's a compilation of a lot of different uh, events in our careers, but about the last half of the book is the Escobar investigation. And it tells the truth. And, you know, and we've done so many shows. I mean, we've done hundreds of shows now worldwide. Um, people say, how do you remember what to say when you're on stage? Well, when you tell the truth, it's pretty, it's pretty easy, you know, you don't have to remember what lie we told Mike over in Ireland, what we might have told Sam over in Scotland. And, you know, you, we just get up and tell the truth and we, we can punctuate it with photographs that we took from that time. And we've got a couple of videos and, um, I guess that helps keep us going. Um, you know, if you're doing 75, 80 shows a year, there's a lot of interest around the world. It's, it's amazing. Um, it's amazing what we've got to do in retirement. This is the last thing we ever thought we'd be doing. When Netflix, you know, approached us, that's why we did not want to do it because we thought that they were going to romanticize Pablo. And we said, you know what? They, they told us that they would not. And I think they, they pretty much did not, but yeah. And you hit a good point there. I mean, yeah, we lost a lot of friends. I lost a couple of good guys. In fact, one of the first captains, uh before steve got there with with gary sheridan uh was under our control we sent him out to investigate then they killed him uh that's really when everything started we started putting that full court press on pablo escobar you know uh, one of his one of pablo's guys killed this young captain i'll never forget him pedro rojas and uh, rest in peace but it, it was uh something that you know, in the United States, when we when we work, you you uh, we're in control, right? And in a foreign country, we're there as guests. So there, the Colombian cops were in control. We were there as liaison. You know, we weren't uh, we were there helping them, but by us being there with them really gave us the edge, basically, because we could get that firsthand information. And we saw firsthand what Pablo Escobar uh, was doing. Uh, so, it, it, you know what, it is personal. And there's a lot of times I would tell Steve that second search is like, man, you know, why don't we just all go home and let him surrender again and, you know, <laughs> let him go back to his custom-made prison. And then uh, you would see, your, you know, you'd see the car bombs. With me, that's very, you know, then uh, your, you know, people getting killed. Uh, that was your, we cannot give up. You got to go after him. But, you know, in, is Pablo Escobar considered a hero? Yeah. In some places in Medellin, you go to some neighborhoods and I tell people, you know what, you better not badmouth Pablo Escobar in those areas because there's still people that think he's that hero, that God, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, another quick example is when uh, we arrested one of his young Sicarios, 15 years old, you know, and he, we took him back to the base. And, it's, you know, it's an interview that I'll never forget what he told me. 
basically he said, you know what? He says he loves Pablo Escobar. He owed his life to Pablo Escobar because Pablo picked him and his mother up from a street garbage. You know, living, they had a little cardboard box. Pablo says, hey, jump in. You know, took him to a house, bought him clothes, bought him, gave him money. And you know what? This young kid says, uh, Mr. Pena, he says, I, I will die for Pablo Escobar. That's why I killed for him. He says, I owe my life. My mom's in a, in a house. She's happy. She has money. She's got a stove. He, and he says, whatever money I make from Pablo Escobar goes to my mother. And, you know, and then I, I laughed a little because he said, whatever's left over, he says, I get a nice pair of tennis shoes, a nice pair of jeans, and hopefully I'll have drinking money. That's that's my life. He said, but, you know, I'll, I'll, and then he said, I'll be dead by 22, 23 years old. And then he started confessing he had already killed 10 police officers, 10 police officers, just as cold hearted, just talking to me like it was it was nothing. And then he would say, yep. I get a hundred bucks a head. Can you believe that? A hundred dollars a head for a human being. Uh, and it was all Pablo Escobar. And he was proud of the fact that he had already killed 10 people for Pablo Escobar. So that's that, you know, like I said, Steve and I don't call him a romanticism. We call him a mass, mass murder, you know, and then uh, what the figure we put 10 to 15,000 people Pablo Escobar killed. And then we were, that figure, we were way off. One of the Sicarios, Popeye, the only Sicario left. And he's dead now, but publicly, and he had more following than, than us, I think. You know, he was, he had shows, he had all sorts of stuff going for him. But he claims, he said, no, no. He said, the number's not ten to 15,000. He says, closer to 50,000 people Pablo Escobar killed. So, so Pablo Escobar, and this is why, you know, should never be romanticized, killed a lot of innocent people, uh, put a bomb on a commercial airline, a Bianca airline, 107 innocent people, put a bomb at the DOS building in Bogota, which is another 120 people, killed presidential candidate. A lot of politicians, a lot of police officers. So why should he? He's not a romanticized. He was just a uh, a mass murderer, a criminal. And uh, you know what? He had that charisma. He did have that charisma. Uh, there's a neighborhood in Medellin, the Pablo Escobar neighborhood, you know, where they built houses. So it's uh, so like and like I like you know what Steve said. We tell the real story when we go up on stage and. Uh, we have our photos, we have our videos, and it's basically the rise and fall of Pablo Escobar. The day before the ambassador gets a call from one of my informants, how did, how did the informant get a hold of an ambassador? He did. So then the ambassador says, Javier, you're going to get on a plane, go to Miami, Florida, because the informant knows where Pablo Escobar is. I try to argue with the, with the ambassador. <laughs> Say, sir, he's he's here in Medellin. We have him. <laughs> he says, you get on a plane or I kick you out of the country. So I go and and the guy, the irony of all this, the guy who tells me that Pablo Escobar has just been killed is the informant because he's on the phone. <laughs> so then I go back and meet Steve. But Steve, Steve, luckily, Steve was there. But before before I let you both go, in the brilliant show that you guys do, I don't know if you still bring it up, but you bring up a, a slide with Barry Seal. Um, and we, we mentioned on stage at the time, Tom Cruise was going to play him in a movie. You know, that's the movie hadn't come out, but it, 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 has, it has since come out. Uh, like, what do you know about Barry Seal? If, if you knew him, what do you remember about him? 
And have you seen the movie? Go ahead, Avi. Yeah, okay. But yeah, that's a great question. Very sure, yeah. And you know what? Let me start off. I saw the movie. It's a great movie. It's pretty accurate, being it's a Hollywood movie. Barry Seal was a top-notch pilot uh, on his own. Barry Seal got in trouble with DEA for a running load, so Barry Seal was arrested, and Barry Seal became one of our informants. Yes, that is, and you know that's public. He was working for us. I never met Barry Seal. I know of him. I've talked to agents who, who worked him. But Barry Seal, the Ochoa brothers, part of the cartel, Jorge Luis, Juan David, they're the ones who hired Barry Seal. So then all of a sudden he starts flying loads and Pablo Escobar loves Barry Seal because Barry Seal was a very adventurous type of a pilot, could land the plane anywhere in the jungles, took chances. And man, he was doing a lot of loads for the Medellin cartel. Pablo Escobar loved Barry Seal. Then all of a sudden, and Barry Seal is the one who comes out with the idea of putting cameras. So he's taking pictures when they were landing in Central America of Pablo Escobar, the Ochoas, military people, politicians. Barry Seal testifies for us. We indict Pablo Escobar, the Ochoas, the whole Medellin cartel based on Barry Seal's testimony and photos, Pablo Escobar finds out. Pablo Escobar goes ballistic. And Pablo Escobar hated, hated informants. So he goes to the Osoa brothers, he is mad. He says, this guy is snitching on us, you hired him. So it was the Ochoa brothers who hired the two Sicarios that ended up killing Barry Seal in 2000, uh, I'm sorry, 1996 in Louisiana when Barry Seal was going back to his halfway house. A federal judge in Florida announced in public record where Barry Seal was staying. Basically, that was his death warrant. He was killed under the orders of Pablo Escobar. Steve, do you remember anything about that? Or have you seen the movie? And is it is it accurate to the world that you knew? Uh, I have seen the movie. I enjoyed it. I um, actually spoke to the agent that was uh, the control agent for Barry Seal. And, you know, there's some literary licensing involved in it. Uh, if you remember the scene where he crashes the plane and he gets out and he's covered in white powder and he takes a kid's bicycle, that's, that's Hollywood. That's not true. But the other parts are basically true. The, you know, landing and flying into Central America, the things that he was doing for uh, one of the intelligence agencies, prior to running cocaine for the Medellin cartel. Um, it's pretty good. It's, it's uh, fairly accurate from what the people that know say. Okay, I've already kept you guys over time. I don't, I don't want to keep either of you much longer, but it's great to see the both of you again, first of all. And it's great to see that you're both still doing the show because it was a remarkable experience from somebody who was learning as he was there too. And the stories you both have to tell, I can't recommend them enough for people who haven't seen you live. If people don't, and know the intrinsics of the stories. I can't recommend them enough. Thanks so much for the time. Uh, thank, thank you, you. Uh, Mike. It's good to see you again. And if, if people want to find out more about us, check us out at deanarcos.com or gameofcrimespodcast.com. Mike, and bring us back to Ireland, man. We had a great time. Yeah. We loved it, man. You're great people. <laughs> we had a blast. Thank you, Mike.